0: I'm Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm recording this extra early this morning, and I'm going to have to do it fast because we have um, a huge chunk of our... Um, staff in this week for the dispatch and we are doing a media training seminar which hopefully sarah is going to take the lead on because she's actually done she's been a media trainer and uh i've had to i had to take media training once it's uh gosh this is not an interesting topic i'll be quick i was a I, i was a television producer i knew a little bit about tv i've watched a lot of tv I've been on a lot of TV and so I'm not saying media training is pointless, but um, particularly if for people in my line of work and the kinds of people that we hire and the kinds of people I've worked with, like at national review and AI and et cetera, a big chunk of media training is explaining to people how to relax and not take it too seriously rather than, Building them up for like you know this is like tightrope walking, and you could die um doesn't mean there aren't like little tricks and little things to know, and when you're starting out, you don't know that it's really just not that hard or impressive or anything like that um but then there' are also I don't want to second guess people there's some people who have real sort of shyness issues, you know all that kind of thing. One of the things that was always amazing to me when I was a television producer was. How and this this comes up a little bit with podcasts. Like if, if there's somebody I've never heard speak and 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 have, really have don't know much about them, I'll ask Guy to go and look for a podcast he's been on or look for a YouTube channel that he's been on or or she's been on, they've been on, um, just to make sure that they can talk. Um, and because I mean, there's a difference between podcast talking, obviously, and TV talking. Um, but there are some people who are bet, legit bad at both. Um, and then there are some weirdly who are only bad at one of them. Like when I was a TV producer, um, we would run into this every like, and again, the TV show I mainly produced was this, um, TV show called Think Tank with Ben Wattenberg, and it was pretty dorky. Um, sort of deep dives on a single pol- public policy issue every episode, kind of thing with various experts. And, um, Um, But we would have, you know, like Nat Glazer, who I'd been reading for a long time, I think is one of the great sort of neocon public intellectuals um, um, for those of a certain generation out there. I'm not going to get deep in the weeds on this, but like when I say he's a great neocon public intellectual, it literally has nothing to do with foreign policy. He was, it almost has nothing to do with like being a Republican because he was mostly kind of a social Democrat kind of guy. But he was a beautiful writer, um, really smart, um, and you read him and you just, it's one of the, he was one of those writers where your eyes just move through the text sometimes as if there's no resistance because he was just such a clear writer. And then you put him on TV and he was like Larry David's um, much more Jewish uncle who had really bad hay fever and he would like blow his nose on tv which again we're doing media training today i will tell people don't blow your nose on tv um uh another one uh we didn't have him on the show but we did interviews with him um was what's his name richard posner who's a big uh appellate court judge one of the foremost sort of legal public intellectual guys he's been on something of a journey um in retirement or semi-retirement or whatever but was sort of a law and economics guy, really smart, wrote a bunch of books, um, really clear, forceful, um, declarative writer. And then you get him on TV and he looks at his shoes for um, the entire interview. Um, so there are some people who are sort of outliers, but in general, it's just not that The getting out of your head when you do TV is the biggest trick of, of of doing tv it's just not rocket science anyway moving on so this leaker thing i, I want to say i kind of called it i directionally called it on the dispatch podcast this week i had said this whole thing is kind of sketch and I, I should probably have gone back and looked what my exact quote was but it kind of felt like some like the kid of somebody with security clearance showing off um, to his friends and and that kind of thing it wasn't quite that obviously but sort of the same dynamic this is a 21 year old guy hanging out with a bunch of gamers on discord he did it you know again like we are going to now we are in now the gladiatorial phase of spin control on all of this about what his motives are or were you know one of the kids from this uh, gamer group gave one of those super pixelated uh, hidden identity interviews, he was saying there was no political agenda to this whatsoever. He was not um, trying to help Russia or hurt Ukraine or undermine the Biden administration. And that's going to be inconvenient. That's, it's clearly inconvenient to one group and it's probably going to be inconvenient to two groups. The first group that it's already inconvenient for are is like the Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus, the Tucker Carlson caucus, who have behaved grotesquely in the last twenty four hours. Um indefensibly. Um I expect moronic statements from uh Marjorie Taylor Green. I have a you know, obviously I i am not a big fan of Tucker's shtick now, and I think so much of it really is shtick, even if it's shtick to entertain himself and he doesn't really realize what a mess he's become intellectually and politically. But Tucker's still just orders of magnitude smarter than Marjorie Taylor Green but I uh, caught some of his monologue last night and I don't watch Tucker's show, but um, my wife and I were actually watching Perry Mason. And since that was on on demand, yes, I still get cable. Uh, when the show ended, it ended like right before or right in the middle or at the, right at the start of Tucker's monologue. And, was, and so the audio just started playing. And I was like, oh, what what fresh hell is this? Um, anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tucker, they want this to be, they want this kid to be the leaker, to be a whistleblower, truth-teller, hero, martyr. Um, in case you missed it, this is, this is, I'm not going to read this whole friggin' thing. Um, but this is what Marjorie Taylor Greene um, released last night on Twitter. Yeah, so this is what she tweeted last night, which I think was the dumbest statement of the day. Um, or at le- late last, late yesterday afternoon, she says. Jake Teixeira, um, who's the leaker, is white, male, Christian, and anti-war. That makes him an enemy of the Biden regime. And he told the truth about troops being on the ground in Ukraine and a lot more. Ask yourself, who is the real enemy? A young, low-level National Guardsman or the administration that is waging war in Ukraine, a non-NATO nation against nuclear Russia without war powers? Now, First of all, like, who's the real enemy? Like, um, the guy who leaked classified, I mean, he's not an enemy. He's a criminal. Um, all this enemy talk is like so promiscuous and ridiculous. This Teixeira guy, and I feel so bad for Roy Teixeira, my colleague at AEI, because I think Teixeira is actually a pretty common Portuguese name, but not in the States. And, um, so I wonder how many people are wondering if he's asking him if he's related Anyway, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Marjorie Taylor Greene because Marjorie Taylor Greene is profoundly stupid. She's basically the Korean toilet ghost of American politics and shame on the right for signal boosting this chick all the time. But just to be clear, like, leading with the fact that he's a white male Christian, like, how do you think people are going to read that? I mean, if, if the leaker were, you know black female muslim or or uh you know a jew or something like would she think that therefore they their crimes need a closer look and be less likely to support them as a quote quote unquote whistleblower um but more broadly the guy's not a whistleblower right i mean at least according to that interview at least according to the washington post stuff he's not a whistleblower he's a dork with self-esteem issues. One of these sort of, you know, insular, insular adjacent. I mean, again, we may find out new things. So, you know, this is just from what we know, which at least I'm trying to stick close to. He did this to show off, not to like be a major player in um, a major national security issue or to choose sides in a geos strategic struggle or to bring down a government or to be, you know, a, a whistleblower or anything like that. He was showing off to his bro friends. And that spin is not very that, – that interpretation of things is not very useful to Tucker. Tucker, who last night just lied. He lies now. Um, you know, I'm sure he's somewhat lawyered down in some way about some of this stuff. But, like, you know, by the way he talks, the impression that he wants his audience to have, to take from his statements, Tucker's just a flat-out liar now. And it's um, It's sad. And it's really pathetic given that he always talks about how the show is the enemy of spin and is the bastion of truth and all that kind of stuff. And then he sits there this week and just lets Trump lie to his face and does nothing about it. I mean, it's it's just propagandizing. Um, and, uh, you know, so Fox News, the news side of Fox, reported that the American forces that are in Ukraine aren't fighting Russian forces. That's what Tucker said last night is that, American troops are fighting Russian troops in, um, a war. And, um, at least the news division of Tucker's own network says that's not true. That these guys were basically there as part of like the oversight to make sure that our money was being well spent and like and was working with embassy stuff for security and that kind of thing. But Tucker wants to say that this is a war, that it's an outrageous war. He wants to say that this is like the Pentagon Papers and that everybody who doesn't love this guy is a hypocrite because the people who love Chelsea Manning and, and all those people are not rallying to, 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 this, to share his defense. And he's got a point, not much of one, but he's got a point insofar as the people who rallied to Chelsea Manning, Manning and Edward Snowden, they were wrong too. But Tucker wants to be the wrong, wrong in the same way that the people he's criticizing were wrong about Teixeira, right? Rather, the thing to do is be consistent and say that people who violate the national security of the United States and disclose um, vital sensitive information that could get people killed um, are doing the wrong thing regardless of their political motivations. This is the such a problem with the right these days that some people on the right want to use it. it, it the gateway drug is this hypocrisy stuff, right? They 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 hold up the left's own standards and then say, "See how you're sh- how you're falling short of those standards," and that's fine. I believe in that kind of argumentation. I think that's actually part of persuasion. That's why I wrote "Suicide the West." The way I wrote it is, I was trying to say that you know these things are good by the left's own understanding of th- of what's good, but what. Tucker and Green and all these, you know, jabbering you know, bandersnatches say is, is they end up doing is they end up internalizing the left standards and the left categories for their own tribe, turning this guy who's just at minimum a moron criminal going by the facts that we have right now, who's has done serious damage to the United States government, to our allies and um, to the people of, to the people who were helping win or fight a war in Ukraine. Um, also, he could seem like um, the coolest dude in a Discord chat room. Um, and these guys are turning him into a prop. They're turning him into some sort of, you know, horse vessel, Matthew Shepard kind of symbolic figure. Um, in the same way they used that kid who shot, you know, shot a couple of people. I'm not, I can't remember his name. You know, and I'm sure there are people who are are horrified that I cannot remember the name of this dashboard saint martyr who went running into a, who drove for, you know, hours so that he could bring a gun to George Floyd riots type stuff and, and shoot somebody. I'm not saying the guy was guilty of homicide in you know, a first degree murder or anything like that, but like he was being an idiot and he was putting himself in a situation where he had no reasonable expectation to do any good and where lots of bad things could could happen, but he's become whatever the guy's name is. I can't remember um, this. You know, grand martyr to you know the you know the coming civil war against the forces of wokeness kind of thing. Anyway, the other group, I, I'm glad I remember the other group that is really going to hate the facts of why this kid did what he did. If if they don't change, are his lawyers because. As stupid as it is, um, as an excuse, saying you're a whistleblower, saying you're doing journalism, saying you're holding the government accountable, um, all of that sort of allegedly high-minded stuff, which I still think does not matter. You, should, you know, Snowden should be in jail. Chelsea Manning should still be in jail. Um, uh, this guy should go to jail if, if in fact he's is guilty of what he's accused of. But uh, those sort of motivations, win you converts and friends and supporters and could work on juries saying that, you know, this was uh, your way of showing off to a bunch of teenagers does not win you like huge numbers of supporters from anywhere. And um, and so it will not shock me at all if the lawyers, you know, particularly after, you know, Tucker offers a really sympathetic interview with whoever he can. Um, tell him to shut up and get ready to spin out this narrative like he was, he was helping America and trying to stop world war three and yada, yada, yada. Cause that's just a, I don't think there's any defense but PR and, and legally wise. Um, it's a better defense than what seems to be the truth, which is that, you know, he was showing how cool he was to um, a bunch of kids who like to meme allegedly racist and anti-Semitic stuff. And that's the other thing is like, if you listen to the Tucker monologue, he thinks that the fact that the kid was accused, is it being accused by the media of being racist is somehow proof that he's a hero. Like that there are no legitimate accusations of racism or legitimate accusations of anti-Semitism that can be aimed at, you know, Uh, young right-wing males like that's just a illegitimate thing to say and it can be an illegitimate thing to say for sure the charge of racism gets thrown around a lot um gets thrown around a lot in cases where it's it's outrageous and indefensible but you know who are racists racists you know who are anti-semites anti-semites and calling a, a racist or an anti-Semite anti-Semitic um, when they are, in fact, racist or anti-Semitic is not illegitimate. And yet that's the, sort of, that's the sort of cultural weird dog whistle signaling that you see in so much of this stuff. It's like, you know, they're coming for your freedom to be a racist kind of thing. And um, I think you have freedom to be racist, by the way. But you all, we also have freedom to criticize and shame Racism. And um, if these kids are sitting around, you know, yelling stupid anti-Semitic and, 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 and racist stuff, um, I'm not sure how incredibly relevant it is in a, in a criminal sense. Um, and I do think there is some sort of like uh, work from the mainstream media to sort of prepare people to hate this guy for those reasons so that you don't have to think he's some sort of free speech martyr and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if the accusation is true, like it doesn't speak well of them. Um, and that's this problem with this sort of binary thing: is if the other, if one side doesn't like you, that means mean you're good, which is just the most asinine, exhausting way of going through life. Not all of your enemies' enemies are your friends, particularly if you are not engaged in some sort of Machiavellian 15th century Florence game of Thrones kind of, you know, scheming battle um, for ultimate supremacy and not if, or if you're, you know, if you're fighting world war two, fine, My the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But like in real life, the enemy of your enemy can also be a dick. um, And like this idea that like somehow this is what popular front, um, is a, this is what you know? This is, I, I've been consistent about this for for thirty years. You can go back and find stuff I wrote and like I don't know nineteen ninety nine about why I don't like the popular front. The popular front was originally a concept of the left, right? It was like all all the parties of the left need to unite and not criticize each other. The the phrase in French, you know, ribbit 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 les gauches. It's like um no enemies to the left, right? And it was a great strategy by communists to get credentials and legitimacy from more mainstream parties. And it seemed like a worthwhile, pragmatic approach by um, more mainstream liberal parties um, because of the common enemy of, of fascist parties and that kind of thing. And of course, as happened again and again and again in all sorts of places, communists were very happy to use popular front tactics when they were in their interest. Um, but then once they got any kind of power, they were perfectly happy to throw everybody under the bus on the left and the right, who wasn't abjectly loyal to the communist party. Um, it be fun to do an actual whole podcast just on sort of the history of communist uh, tactics in a democracy. Yes. But popular frontism says I have to, Completely shut up about my 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 disagreements with my own side because I hate the other side so much, and I got seven years of Popular Front BS since Trump came down the frigging escalator. People telling me that because the left because the Democrats are so much worse, you shouldn't care that Trump is lying, corrupt, you know all these kinds of things. You shouldn't care that he's a protectionist. You shouldn't care that he's um, openly hostile to the First Amendment or openly hostile to the Constitution um, or is crude or boorish. Um, all that mattered was that, you know, we stay unified in this cult of personality around this guy because the, the left is such a greater danger. Um, and that's just not the conservatism I grew up with. Conservatism uh, I, like, grew up and I grew up with is we had all sorts of internal debates and disagreements, and I think that made us stronger it let people understand that that their coalitional, um, you know, sparring partners uh, were people of good faith, um, that their motives were sound. And instead, when you have popular frontism, um, everybody sort of uh, um, is constantly on the hunt for traitors and on the hunt for people who are less pure than we are, and that kind of thing. And I just think it's it's just nonsense. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help final resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation and it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Name the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and select as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's one last point I wanted to make about this leak. What's really, and I may, maybe I'll write about this, but like what's really grotesque about it is that, you know, I know there are a lot of people who've just kind of tuned out the, the war in Ukraine, but I pay pretty close attention to it. Um, it's one of the few news stories that I try to stay up on daily um, um, in, in a more, more than just sort of, oh, what's the latest development kind of thing. And what the Russians are doing in Ukraine is evil. And I, We talked about this about about I talked about this with Fred Kagan, and really, I think one of the best podcasts I've done in a couple of years, um not because of me, but because of Fred, um was just really great conversation. Lots of people liked it. You should check it out. Um, and I wrote my l a Times column a little bit about this is that, you know the the Russian military has been objectively, as the Marxists might like to say, um has been objectively, cruel and barbaric for over a century. Um, And I'll talk more about that in a second, but let me just get this last point about the leaker. out. And um, the things that they're doing in Ukraine are are so evil. It's, I mean, the greater evil is against um, what they're doing to Ukrainians, but it's also worth noting that the evil they're doing to Russians is... Is horrendous as well. I mean, you literally have officers referring to some troops as disposables, right? Let's like throw five disposables at that machine gun nest nest so we can figure out what their position is, that kind of thing. Um, um the Russian army is raping and torturing people. It, you know, there are reports, there are credible reports about. Four-year-old girl being um, uh, sexually abused. I'm not going to get graphic on that, but um, and at least according to the report, you know, the one of the officers who forced himself on this little kid, I mean, little little babe, barely out of being objectively a baby, um, joked about how well, now I'll turn her into a woman. Old ladies are getting raped. There are mass graves with scores of people with their hands tied behind their back. You know, people are getting mutilated, um, tortured. Um, and that just leaves out, like, you know, the more, you know, banal evils, as Han Arendt might say, of schools being targeted with missiles, um, you know, playgrounds being blown up, um, apartment comp- complexes being, you know, bombed, um, with the intent, the explicit, explicit intent of killing civilians and terrorizing the population. And, you know, just la- let, for all you people who keep saying, oh, well, this is just a normal conflict, it's a border dispute, you know, which I'm glad Ron DeSantis walked away from that phrase. Um, it's not a freaking border dispute. You had Dmitry Medvedev on Friday, former president of Russia, and he's now like the number two guy in the state security council, talking about how um Ukraine will simply disappear it will stop being and this is what you know Fred and I were talking about a bit it will stop being a country it will there will be if Putin takes Kiev and takes control of the country there will be massive genocide and I don't just mean the cultural genocide that the Russians have been trying to do for a while there I mean straight up you know ethnic cleansing mass slaughter um and so you imagine like you're a Ukrainian who's been you know sleeping in either frozen or muddy ditches for a year, and you're working with, you know, and you're you're hearing how the Americans are behind you and all this kind of stuff and and this kid thinks that effort is so trivial that, and he takes his job so um cavalierly. That he's like, yeah, what's the harm of me, you know, you know, showing off to my buddies this stuff that I've, you know, I have access to because it makes me seem cool. It's just like sort of the gross self-indulgence of it. Um, And then to call that act, you know, heroic whistleblowing and speaking truth to power, it's all so craven and cynical and, and, and gross. And, you know this crowd that just will not look I, there is a intellectually defensible realist case for letting horrible people do horrible things to other people um it is not our job to get to prevent every dictator from doing a bad thing everywhere um we I'm, I don't think we are the world's policemen um but least you can do is bear witness right the least is you can tell truth about what is happening the least you can do is when you see institutionalized rape and slaughter um in a grotesque um criminal invasion of another country the least is you can just call it that and not mock the people who take it seriously and not mock the victims by saying um you know this is no big deal this happens all the time and I'm just so disgusted by the number of people that I, I know used to agree with that point. Um, who, um, now because they think it's more important to like own the libs or something, um, than to just simply tell the truth about what, what evil people are doing. Um, it's really just depressing anyway. Um, Oh yeah. So, but the, the the communism thing, um, or the Russian army thing. So, I've been reading a little bit about this. I really want to do more. Part of the part of it is, is that my wife, as you guys know, the fair Jessica is working on this biography of her dad and, um, she's gotten, I would maybe argue a little too into the weeds on some of the East Europe stuff, Eastern Europe stuff, but she's really interested in it. And, um, and she's doing this as a labor of love. um, I just keep telling her, you know, at some point he has to get to Alaska and you got to start you know, doing research about that. She had a degree from Johns Hopkins in Soviet politics and she was raised by a at least equally anti-communist dad as I was. And um, so she's really interested in it, and we're talking about it and I'm looking at some of her books and stuff. And um, um, and it's interesting, the the thing that, you know, so there are a couple of things. One is I remember when the POW, MIA stuff really kind of like became you know, became a prairie fire politically and culturally in the United States. I remember asking my dad um, whether he thought, you know, the, the North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese, because um, they stopped being the North Vietnamese after they won, whether they really did have Americans still as POWs and his position was, well, obviously we can't be a hundred percent sure, but it's definitely possible. And then he gave me this long lecture about how communists have, has a policy forever. This thing about taking, you know, not just POWs, but whole populations as hostages. Um and, Putting them in internal exile in places where they're manageable and eventually destroyable um, or barterable, right? Um, and um, admittedly, the POW policy and the um, captive population policy are, are kind of different policies, but they come from the same moral framework. And there's just a really long history of them um, in all of these Marxist-Leninist regimes, you know, chiefly, of course, you know, pride of position goes to the Soviet Union. Um, and then you see these stories about, you know, taking kids away. The Soviets did that kind of thing in lots of places. I'm pretty sure they did it in the Greek Civil War. I'm sure, you know, they, they did it in all sorts of internal, you know, um, conflicts. Uh, you know, Russification is a concept that goes back to the Tsars. And um, um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, I was reading all of these human rights reports about the rape stuff, and which is not cheery. And, um, and there's this great piece, oh, you know, there's a great piece in commentary called Do the Russians Worship War, um, which you should check out we'll put it in the show notes. It's the current, I think it's still the current cover story of commentary magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this stat in there about all the raping that the red army did when it quote unquote liberated Eastern Europe. Um and there was just this quote. I put it in my column, um this just horrifying quote where like the health minister of Hungary um basically asked his superiors in the government to declare like all babies born from like call it nineteen from the sp- the fall of 46 to the spring of 48, something like that, um, that they should all be uh, just simply declared orphans because it was just getting too difficult to to claim otherwise. And people needed cover um, for the fact that they had, had been gotten pregnant through rape. And I started going down this rabbit hole and, and Jessica was telling me about the stuff she knows about, about Prague and, um, it's really kind of amazing, and I kind of miss some of this stuff because this this storyline comes out in um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. This is not part of a lot of. I mean, obviously, there are stories of of barbaric behavior and all that kind of stuff, but the systemic nature of the Red Army's rape and Stalin's tolerance for it um, really didn't come into focus until after. Uh, the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Berlin Wall when archives were opened. And it turns out that like the Red Army, um, you know, you can't say the entire Red Army because the entire Red Army had like 12 million people in it, but um, the Red Army in Eastern Europe had at minimum a de facto policy that just raping the population was okay. And the estimates in some of the books, and I was reading this, this book called Stalin's war, not Um, I'm sorry, Stalin's Wars, Stalin's War. It's a different book, really interesting book. We can talk about that another time. Um, uh, And I was looking through some of Jess's books and stuff, you know, um, um, you know, and also like, you know, (laughs) the, the crimes against humanity or war crimes of the red army in East European countries, basically each country that was quote-unquote liberated, as far as I can tell, has its own Wikipedia page just on these atrocities, just on the rapes, in effect, plus mass shootings and torture and that kind of stuff. But um, the numbers for Hungary were somewhere... That the low-end estimate was um, 10% of the female population, and as high as 40% of the female population was raped by the Red Army. Um, in Germany... Um, I don't remember what the percentages are, but the estimates are are north of a million and almost two million um, women raped in the in just the parts of East of Germany that were controlled by Soviet forces. Um, in Vienna, I think the stat I had in my column was between seventy. Uh, Vienna alone, just the city of Vienna, like between seventy and hundred thousand rapes. And then you get into all the other just horrendous things that the Red Army has 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 done or been complicit in. You know the mass deportation of POWs that Stalin didn't trust to bring home, so they were just essentially liquidated. You know, I read Victims of Malta while I was in high school, and it just it kind of shattered me in some ways. Um, did I say Malta? Yalta. The point here is not that you know I'm sure Tucker or somebody would say, "Well, look, bad things happen in war. War is bad. That's why we shouldn't go to war." And you know, um, and superficially, that's absolutely right. We shouldn't go to war. Um, You know, I'm I'm much less rah-rah about war stuff than I was when I was younger. And it's absolutely true. Bad things happen in all wars. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all armies and all wars are equal. And, I mean, look, I mean, like, you know, my friend David French. He was a lawyer serving as a lawyer, you know, at the front lines in a war. We send lawyers out. To make sure that we adhere to our own laws, to the Geneva Conventions, all these kinds of things, that we do things lawfully. Now, totally open that maybe we take that stuff too far. Totally legit. Um, Totally legit to argue that we don't take it far enough. The whole reason we have lawyers out there is because we think this is something that is worth debating, right? Um, But we try real hard to learn lessons from the mistakes that we've made and not um, be—and not— codify and own our most evil behaviors and, um, and impulses. The red army has never gone through that kind of introspection. The red army, you know, um, has never said, what can we learn about our behavior, um, during world war II um, to become better. Right. Um, as Fred was pointing out, you know, it's like the red army has internalized this cultural notion that uh, brutality is proof of determination to win. And therefore the more brutal you are, the more committed to winning you are. And, um, the things the red army is doing, you know, the things the red army has done, or actually the things the red army did, it's not the red army anymore. It's the Russian army. But, you know, part of my point is this remarkable continuity between them because, you know, look, I, as you know, I think, talk about structural racism and you know structural sexism and all that kind of stuff is complicated but overblown um but if you have an institution that has literally been turned into the object of essentially a state religion and where its most brutal um behavior is codified as its most glorious behavior um odds are you're not going to have a um a lot of restraint when it comes to doing evil things and um you know you had putin um basically legalized war crimes he basically said that you know they basically passed a law saying that, that the anyone no one in the red army in occupied ukraine can be charged with violating um a, a bunch of specific international or you know uh or domestic uh war crime laws like basically no one's going to get prosecuted um, they also, you know, passed some sort of bill thing saying that the, um, people who ordered these things cannot be prosecuted. Uh, they re- pulled themselves out of one of the codicils of the Geneva convention to that end. Um, and I think that just the way we talk about the war in Ukraine is like, I mean, you know, the, the Marjorie Taylor green crowd talks about it as if, you know, Putin's cool and impressive, and kind of better than us because he's so willful and strong, like bull. Um, um, but even sort of among n- normal people who are probably rooting for Ukraine, there is still this underlying assumption that Russia's a normal country that got itself into a mistake. And I just I think the more you look at what Russia has become. Um, and what, and the way Putin is running it, um, it's, it's this truly sinister and malevolent force. Now the Russian people aren't necessarily that. Um, I think the Russian, there are a lot of Russian, I listened to this economist podcast, um, um, that just talks to sort of Russian, essentially dissidents who are incredible. It's a very depressing podcast because it's just Talking to one Russian or another who, after another, who used to be proud of their country and is now in exile or otherwise, um, you know, resisting um, what Russia has, resisting and lamenting what Russia has become. And um, so I'm not saying, you know, and there's a, tra- I talked to, I remember talking to Leon Aaron about this, you know, there is a tradition of, of real Western style liberalism, human rights, all that kind of thing in Russia. Um, it's just never been able to reach critical mass institutionally, you know, if you watch what they say on that state TV stuff, and you got to remember in state TV, um, everything that is said on those propaganda shows, um, is said with the explicit approval of the state, maybe not prior to it being said. Cause I do think some of those guys freelance, like the, there was that one guy, who actually got pulled off air for saying that any child like literally child some sci-fi writer was talking about how he when he was a kid he'd been in ukraine and met kids who talked about how ukraine was its own country and the host of the show says well you know what you do with a kid like that is you drown them in the river right then and there all those kids should be drowned or they should be rounded up and put in churches or their houses and then set fire to the houses with their families inside. At least that guy was pulled off the air. So there's somebody somewhere who like says we got to be a little careful about what we say. But for the most part, um, the people who say on TV, we should nuke Ukraine. We should, you know, um, commit mass slaughter and all that kind of stuff. They're allowed to say it. Whereas the people who say this war is a mistake, they're not allowed to say anything. And so, you know, at the era, at the, uh, at the level of sort of national character formation, the Russian government is basically just freaking evil now. And um, this desire to reduce everything to the sort of realist calculation of moral equivalence between, you know, state actors acting on their interests, I just find repugnant and ridiculous. Um, again, it doesn't require us to, you know, strap on boots and send American troops into the mix, but it does require... Um, I think, morally, at least speaking honestly about what's going on. I debated, debated is the wrong word, had a um, spirited discussion with Sarah Isger on the first podcast of the week. It's funny, Sarah, at the end of it, I can't—I don't think we were saying it on air, um, but she was saying how she was sure that listeners were going to take my side in it. And I was like, nah, I don't think so. I've, I'm pretty sure that they're going to, think you won this thing. And she was like, no. And um, I was right. Most listeners took her side. Um, And I get why you take your side. I I get it. I don't think I did a particularly fantastic job articulating my position. I tried much harder in the uh, Wednesday G file to sort of explain where I was coming from and admit that, you know, my views have changed closer to Sarah's um, than I had kind of realized when I went, when I gotten into this whole Skokie debate thing. But I don't think the fact that all the listeners agree with Sarah and that I'm essentially agree with Sarah is a good thing. I think it is a sign of how um, degraded our culture and society is, is that we now view free speech rights as basically these things that we have to grant to evil people in order to make sure that good people still have their rights. And I get that argument, I think that's a that is a very valid and um, in some circumstances persuasive argument, but I also don't think it's a sufficient argument. I also think that like the fact that we now see it as simply this um, checks and balances thing devoid of of a a moral understanding of what rights and duties are in a democracy and what is acceptable and what is not in a democracy in a constitutional republic um is a little depressing to me um i think that you know let's put it this way in 1950 very unlikely that we would let large numbers of nazis go around marching in front of jewish homes I don't think that would make us any less of a decent country, any less democratic, any less of a republic or anything like that. We had, it would be basically making a decision within the confines of recent living memory and our own culture and said, yeah, we're going to draw a line here. The thing I kept going back at with Sarah, and you should really go back and listen to it if you're at all interested in this stuff. The thing I kept going back to with Sarah was, you know, it feels like a lot of her argument is a slippery slope argument to me. And she says, no, 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 it's not. It's actually the reverse of a slippery slope. I'm not sure that's right, but it's basically, it's the argument is if, if we allow this, then we will allow that. And if we allow that, we will allow this other thing. And then so on and so on and so on until we have no freedom at all kind of stuff. And I don't believe that. I think you can draw distinctions. I think cultures can draw bright lines around certain things um, in good faith, without inviting the the eventuality of of tyranny and autocracy, um, and so like one point I wish I had made uh, when we were talking, it's one I've made before, is that you know Germany bans all sorts of Nazi speech. You can argue they go too far with it. I I know lots of people do, and maybe they do. I mean I I don't study you know limits on Nazi free speech in Germany. I have higher, better uses of my time. But I think reasonable people can believe that Germany's got a pretty good reason. You know, it's sort of like why Germany doesn't give Scientology free reign. Germany has a really bad experience with cults, with small groups of deeply committed people messing things up. And so they restrict more of that stuff. Now, I don't know that very many people think that like, Germany is currently an authoritarian country or on its way because of this to being some sort of fascistic or or communist or otherwise Orwellian state. People are like, I, I, I kind of get it. You know, Germans probably need a few, you know, they, when it comes to Nazis, the, the Germans should be like belts and suspenders kind of people, right? And that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing. And this gets at this thing that, you know, I have this constant argument with, the, the sort of NatCon common good conservative people, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm currently reading Patrick Deneen's, um, the galley of Patrick Deneen's book where he's heavy into this stuff. This idea that liberalism as a philosophy, as a doctrine on paper is the place where America draws all of its positions on various public and cultural issues, um, I think it's just sort of phantasmagorical weird, right? I mean, like, most Americans, I guarantee you, I'm not trying to denigrate most Americans love this country, right? But if a significant portion of Americans can't tell you what the three branches of government are, I'm pretty sure an even larger number of Americans can't tell you much of interest, they can't give you much information about Locke's second treatise on government, right? Right or what Montesquieu's contribution to um, our constitutional order is, or what the difference is between Madisonian and Hamiltonian um, democracy, right? I mean, again, I'm I'm not trying to be some pinhead intellectual who uh, casts aspersions on people who don't follow this kind of stuff. In fact, I'm doing the opposite. Um, I'm saying that this stuff is for a rarefied audience, It's an audience I'm proud to be part of. I'm not a particularly prominent member of this audience, but I I care about that stuff, right? I care about the sort of intellectual distinctions between all sorts of things. The average American, including the tens of millions of Americans who are either immigrants or the children of immigrants, they, to the extent they're drawing on Lockean liberalism or, you know, Madisonian understandings of this or Hamiltonian understandings of that or... Or the Federalist Papers, or any of that kind of stuff, is by orders of magnitude um, in remove from any of that. You know, they 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 behave the way they behave because they're Americans. Because America has a culture, America has a distinct culture. Our institutions are formed from the American experience. You know, I mean, like this is something that political scientists, you know, used to like. You know, talk about all the times that there are lots, there were lots of countries that copied our constitution because lay, hey, look, we were successful in America because of our constitution. Um, so, you know, let, maybe Paraguay or Argentina, I, I don't know which countries, but it was a bunch of Latin American countries for starters, basically ripped off our constitution. Um, and they all became like, you know, non thriving countries. And a lot of them became sort of banana Republic dictatorships and all that kind of stuff. And it's not to say it's because those peoples were bad peoples or any of that kind of stuff. It's just to say that, like, the American success story is only partially about the words on the paper. Um, It's also about the kinds of people that we've got here and the kinds of institutions and traditions and, you know, and the character of the American people. And I mean the character of American people. I mean on the serious left and on the serious right and everything in between. And um, this idea that somehow um, our institutions can't work within some of that tradition and draw lines short of where pure reason will take us, I just, I don't, I don't agree. And I think that like Sarah's position, which also is David's position, you know, they talked about this on the Advisory Opinions podcast, their position, you know, is very much a, this is a good result of a virtuous uh, mechanism of government, right? It's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like the Hamilton, the Madisonian argument about, you know, checks and balances and and and, and divided government, not just vertically, but horizontally across the country. Um, it yields better politics. I agree with that it's like the mechanistic argument this argument of sort of the checks and balances argument for free speech that if i tolerate this group if if we tolerate this group's speech then we're going to have to tolerate that group's speech is a solid argument and particularly in the way the culture is right now a a a somewhat persuasive argument for the kind of free speech regime that they want and that's what i wrote in the Wednesday G file but you know it's sort of like there are there are um you know, one of the arguments for why are Jews so liberal is that there is among some people this idea coming out of the civil rights movement that Jews need to protect the need to be good allies for other minorities to protect their own freedom right and I think it's an entirely valid point of view I think it is um, a perfectly good argument for cultural and you know, politics and, and, and all that. But it's another, it's a, it's, to me, it's sort of analogous to Sarah's argument about the free speech. I just don't think it's sufficient because when you start sort of defining the American political system, like it's a game of monopoly, right? And look, in a game of monopoly, you all start out with the same amount of money, the same resources. The only difference is one guy's a hat, one guy's a dog, one guy's a thimble or whatever. There is, and so you can just refer to the pieces as pieces because in the instructions, because it doesn't matter which piece you have, The same rules apply to everybody, right? That's the way, if you go back and you read stuff about Skokie and, and um, stuff, it's like the way that people talk about the Nazis, they talk about them like they're a minority. And I think that the problem with that kind of language is that it obscures more than it reveals. Yes, Nazis are a minority in this country. Thank God. I would be pretty offended if someone said, you know, all minorities have rights. Blacks, gays, Jews, Nazis, rapists, blah, 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 blah. Even though it is true that Nazis and rapists have rights. Because we all have rights, right? We all have rights to face our accuser. We all have rights to... Uh, fair trial. We all have rights to free speech to one extent or another, right? Blah, 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 blah. But not all minorities are equal. Not all minority um, ambitions are equal. And being a Nazi is not like being a member of a group that confers a certain identity from birth. You have to choose to one extent or another to be a Nazi um, or to be a Klansman. And when we reduce these arguments down to, uh, these justifications for things like free speech and minority rights to just simply saying as long as you are a minority, all, your cl- all claims of all minorities are equally valid. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I certainly don't think that's true culturally or morally. And I'm less comfortable, even though I think it's the reality, I'm less comfortable with the idea that it's true legally. If the United States had had Germany's policy of uh, curtailing Nazi speech. Um, I'm not sure that it would be the right policy. I'm not sure it would lead to the right results. That's a perfectly open debate to have. I don't think it would make America a meaningfully worse country or less worthy country of our respect and love. Um, it's a judgment call. And that's what I mean about Sarah's sort of, and not just Sarah, because she's speaking for like the majority of the commenters, the majority of people who make these arguments on, on this kind of stuff by reducing things to sort of, uh, a, a, mechanistic kind of uh, whether you're the the hat the thimble or the dog on the board you all have the same rights kind of argument Um, it loses some of the cultural importance of and the the and the institutional memory of what the Constitution is actually for Um, and I don't think the Constitution was actually formed as a means to protect Nazis to march in front of uh, old Jew old Holocaust survivors houses anyway you probably if you're interested in this you you know where I'm coming from if you're not interested in this you probably heard too much already um okay I gotta go but um lastly on the Harlan Crow thing I did not appreciate how much worse it could possibly get when I recorded my limited defense of Harlan for those of you who don't know, I'm friends with Harlan Crow. I'm proud to be Harlan Crow's friend. Harlan Crow is one of the most considerate, decent, nicest people I've ever met. Um, uh, did he make some mistakes in how he, you know, uh, behaved with vis-a-vis Clarence Thomas? Totally reasonable arguments to be had there. Um I put more of the blame on Clarence Thomas. Uh, There was just this revelation late yesterday that Thomas didn't declare that Harlan had bought Clarence Thomas's mother's home um, to turn into some sort of like landmark thing. Um, And he should have disclosed that. I think he should have disclosed that. I think Clarence Thomas should have disclosed that. I think I, I don't know the backstory. I'm not, I, I, I truly and sincerely believe, um, Harlan is telling the truth when he says he wanted to be like a landmark thing um, to preserve it for history. He he buys all sorts of stuff to preserve for history. He believes passionately in preserving history. He's a crazy history buff. And when things calm down, I'll talk more about that. I'd love to have Harlan on the podcast to talk to him about this stuff. Um, But uh, totally fair criticisms to be made, um, or at least totally colorful criticisms to be made, certainly of Clarence Thomas, definitely of Jenny Thomas, definitely of like um, how all of this, you know, appears from a distance and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not here to, to be Harlan Crowe's lawyer or Clarence Thomas's lawyer. Um, but over the weekend, it was astounding to me how the mob went nuts. And all the stuff I say about how dangerous and terrible – Tucker and Marjorie Taylor Greene and these people on the right are for distorting, um, reality and getting worked up into feeding frenzies. I gotta tell you, I'm really kind of bummed out or was, I'm kind of better about it now, but I was really bummed out about how what I saw last week was psychologically just as bad. Like I've been to the garden of evil. It's this thing where Harlan collected a bunch of, um, dictators, uh statues of of dictators and other horrible people, mostly communists of the 20th century. And it was it is was always intended to be sort of a never forget kind of thing. Uh Harlan's a good anti-communist. He's also just sort of fascinated with Russian history. Um and he's talked about in interviews. It's it's not like some sort of secret, but as what often happens when people who don't know anything suddenly learn one thing, they seem to think that they're experts on everything about it. And, you know, it's sort of like, I remember Jane Mayer writing this idiotic piece for the New Yorker about how the Koch brothers um, were deeply involved in libertarian and right-wing politics um, and how sinister it was. What made it sinister was that it was news to her. But if you'd actually followed right-wing and particularly libertarian politics, which is a pretty small universe of politics, um, you'd know that, you know, one of the Koch brothers had run for vice president of the United States on the libertarian ticket that they founded the Cato Institute. I mean, like, it's just, it was not a revelation to anybody but the people who didn't know anything. And similarly with the Harlan Crow stuff, like five minutes of Googling, you could find out what his actual explanation was for the Garden of Edelstein. But instead, I spent the weekend because I defended the Garden of Evil thing because, like, you know, there were these like there's this Patriot Takes Twitter account, which I used to follow. I, I dropped so many people in the last seven days. I'm just so disgusted with them. Um, you know, I defended the Garden of Evil saying, look, it's basically a never-again kind of concept. It's trying to remember the evils of the 20th century. And I had people, supposedly smart people, people who seem like smart, decent people from their bios or their previous tweets, or people who I followed treating me like I was some sort of friggin' idiot for not understanding that this guy I've known for a decade um, is evil and he celebrates evil. And that's why he created the garden of evil. And it's like, you know, not since I remember watching Captain Planet cartoons um, in high school where like the villains were always, of course, polluters were like, if we can only bury all of this toxic radioactive waste under America's playgrounds, we will be triumphant. Right. I mean, it was like, it was that level of stupid to think that this guy was actually objectively celebrating evil, owning evil as his value and built a garden and some sort of like tribute to Baal or something or Beelzebub as, um, um, as a sort of his offering unto evil. Similarly, the idea that he was a Nazi, I mean, like, again, he's not a Nazi. Go read Graham Wood's piece in The Atlantic. It is a grotesque smear to call him a Nazi, you know, um, by this sort of, you know, he, he, he collects stuff. The stuff that he collects about Nazis is maybe, uh, from my experience, I don't know, I don't keep track of his entire inventory, but from my experience it's probably point oh 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 one percent of the things he collects. Like the things he gives pride of placement to aren't some Nazi linens or something. It's like Eisenhower's D-Day helmet or Abraham Lincoln's desk from the state legislature. Um, he's just wildly into Americana stuff, um, particularly like civic Americana stuff. And he's just, he's just a profoundly decent guy. And to see people, a lot of sm- like very prominent, serious people, just because, and I and I am utterly convinced of this is that at, at, on a mass psychology scale, um, what happened was it dawned on a bunch of people that the ProPublica piece was not going to destroy Clarence Thomas, and so the fallback sort of psychological consolation prize and political Plan B was to say, oh, okay, Clarence Thomas is illegitimate because he's a not uh, because he's friends with a Nazi. And or, or as a bunch of people called it, Nazi sympathizer. Ironman Crow is the farthest thing from a Nazi sympathizer. It just, it's just, it's, it's a grotesque slander. And I know that there are a lot of people who think I'm bought and paid for or compromised or whatever, or I'm biased. Yeah, I'm biased in the fact that I actually know the guy and I think incredibly highly of him. And I know that he's a decent guy who just is being just cruelly um, slandered. And, um, the fact that he's rich, uh, you know, doesn't change the, that fact at all. And, um, and so anyway, like the thing that really kind of bummed me out was, you know, I've tried really, really hard, not like, I mean, if you see me on CNN, I do not go, you know, full Jen Rubin. I am not letting go of the conservative positions that I, that I hold dear um that i truly believe are true and that's why i i support them um and i paid a you know i paid a price for this over the last 7 years lost friends i I'm subjected to daily um mockery and harassment from people um you know for for punching right and violating the popular front stuff and all that kind of stuff and um but i've also tried really hard not to let like the strange new respect of the left um seduce me into like abandoning positions that I think are correct objectively right I haven't like done a max boot thing where I say well everything I believe and said about conservatism over the last 20 years was wrong and now I'm a liberal right I haven't done any of that stuff and um and I get a lot of flattery from people that makes it uncomfortable to actually have to say you know you guys are wrong about all of these things you know on tv in print you know in conversations um but i also kind of thought that like i got some benefit of the doubt right the idea that somehow i was giving in to um that that somehow i you know i've conducted myself with some modicum of integrity over the last 7 years and then to hear people tell me that it is obvious i'm lying because this guy they hadn't heard of 48 hours earlier um Is clearly a Nazi and clearly bribing Clarence Thomas. There's no evidence that he's bribing Clarence Thomas. I think the the idea that that was Harlan Crowe's motivation is spurious and ridiculous. But um, regardless, the idea that like, yeah, I'm rising to the defense of a Nazi because I'm bought and paid for um, or I'm an idiot. After spending seven years refusing to drink the Kool-Aid on all things Trump and, you know, inviting uh, outrage and scorn from the neo-Nazi alt-right punks and all these guys on a regular basis, the idea that it was all a con, according to these people, it was just, it really pissed me off. And it just turned me off on politics in a huge way. I've never felt, I haven't felt that remnant in years um, because I just have I had utter contempt for so many people um, who either weren't rising to the defense of this guy. um, And I don't mean rising to the defense because they have to rise because he's more important than all sorts of other people who get slandered, but like just standing in the way of the stupidity of some of this stuff and not joining in and retweeting and, and, and and one upping one asinine bit after another. Um, And all these people who just came right at me and, you know, told me I was a fool um that I was clearly lying that I'm bought and paid for that I'm compromised um that clearly I'm just doing this for partisan reasons and all these kinds of things and it's like what's the freaking point you know um so it was, it was it was it was pretty dispiriting and um I'm kind of over it now for the most part I'm still you know very concerned for my friend and um um And I got to say, you know, after seven years of losing friends, you know, like people, you know, I don't expect everybody to like remember every jot and detail of what the last seven years was like was for me. But like, you know, I didn't enjoy criticizing, you know, people like Chris DeMuth and Bill Bennett and, um, you know, Roger Kimball. I mean, you can go down a list of like right wing um, intellectual, conservative intellectuals and institutions. I mean... I'm at peace with criticizing the Claremont Institute these days, even though I still think there are decent people there. I think the public facing part of it is hot garbage these days, or at least it's, you know, I mean, the magazine is, the journal is still fine. Um, mostly it prints some people that I think should have no business in public life sometimes, but um, you know, I take no joy in, in these kinds of things. Um, I lament them. And so the idea that like somehow all that counts for nothing and I'm just a hack who, you know, is defending this guy for illegitimate reasons. It, it pisses me off. You know, I, you know, I wish I could still be, you know, friends with Bill Bennett the way I was. Um, Lots of people I wish I could still be friends with the way I was. Um, But anyway, enough about me. I just, I wanted to be clear because I was getting a lot of weird email, email from people. Some people were saying good for you, sticking up for your friend, blah, 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 blah. Other people were like changing the subject to, um, you know, criticism of Clarence Thomas, which again, you're free to do. I'm not, I'm not, I, I think Clarence Thomas definitely should have disclosed this stuff about the house. Um, I do think that he was under no particular obligation to disclose, according to the ethics rules, the previous stuff that was reported. I don't think Clarence Thomas is any sign that Clarence Thomas is corrupt in terms of his rulings. And if you ever met Clarence Thomas, he's, he's a very sweet, charming, you know, uh, guy. And I feel, I feel sorry for him. But on the other hand, you know, I think the way his wife has behaved in the last five years, at least two years has been abhorrent. So I'm, I'm happy to make these distinctions, but that's all I've been saying for the last seven years is uh, all I can do is try to tell truth as I see it. And I got no problem with people saying I'm wrong. I got, I get really pissed off when people, with confidence tell me that they are more expert on my motives than i am and that um you know when they 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 talk to me like they know what why i'm really doing something and have to have to educate me on it like i need education on lots of things i don't need education on my motives and um anyway i don't mean to get all testy and sanctimonious but now i have to go do media training so uh I'm looking forward to seeing as many as you can at the remnant event on May 1st. Um, Apologies uh, for the uh, hitting the maximum occupancy thing, but we are going to do more of these things. If people want to sponsor a uh, remnant meetup, a dispatch meetup, that kind of thing, we really want to ramp up this year. Um, And I'm not going to lie as a business proposition, right? We want to do it. We want to, we want to, be growing more robustly. We want to get more members. We want to have, we want to sell more swag. We want to give people um, more value for their subscription by having this sort of sense of uh, community um, and fellowship. We we launched the dispatch for a whole lot of reasons, but one was to have a successful business and the demand to uh, attend these things is really, really strong, which we find it's a huge boost to our morale um, and it's a lot of fun, so we want to do more of them. So if there's there are people out there who want to sponsor one um, or have ideas about who could sponsor one, um, you know, drop us a line. Uh, you can for now, you can send it to jonah at thedispatch dot com. Also probably send it to ryan at thedispatch dot com, even though Ryan is on paternity leave and congratulations. Um, very, very, very cute baby. And other big announcements to come. So with that, uh, thanks for listening and I will talk to you later.